uh, this song, He Who Is Mighty by Sovereign Grace Music. And if you aren't familiar with the song, I think you'll become familiar with it because each week we're going to sing it. Because during Advent season, the chorus line of this song will be used as, head, as kind of the headings of our sermons. So this week will be Taken on Flesh. Next week, Conquered Death's Sting. Right? And then Shattered the Darkness. Lifted our shame. Holy is his name. God did a mighty thing. God did what no one else could do. We make that statement. We can make that statement about God early and often, right? God is doing what no one else can do. In the Christmas season, we often get caught up in all of the pageantry of the season and we forget that what we are celebrating as Christians is not a cultural holiday. We are celebrating the coming of God to be with us. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. His name in the scripture is Jesus, which means God saves I was shocked last week, you know, I'm watching the, uh, uh, the TV was on in the background and we we're doing things as a family and uh, the news went off and I think the Rockefeller Center came on. By the way, they had a terrible looking tree that became really cool. I don't know how they did that, but kudos to them for having a disaster and turning it into something worth looking at. Um, and so they're having this musical celebration of the cultural holiday of Christmas. And all of a sudden, my ear hears joy to the world. The Lord has come. And I just stopped and looked at the TV, and there's this choir singing joy to the world. Not the first verse, but every verse. And if you know the song, they become progressively more Christocentric and about how Christ has conquered death about how Christ is conquering the nations. And this secular cultural celebration is going on and they're singing a hymn that belongs to the church. This is one time in our lives every year where the whole world is talking about our Savior. And too often Christians are having debates about meaningless things that surround the cultural holiday and arguing with our neighbors and our friends and our relatives about whether there is or is not certain things which will remain unsaid from the pulpit in case there's some things that some families might be still observing culturally. And we're arguing about it. Looking like a bunch of stiff, rigid, angry people. And the season that we're in is pointing us to the fact that God has done a great thing. And we should be telling our friends about it. And the first great thing that he did that we often take for granted is he took on our flesh. Now, I know we think a lot of ourselves as humans. So we think, well, that was not that big a deal. But in many ways, it is the biggest deal of this whole thing that we know as the coming of God to be with us, is that he became like us. We live, many of you know, we, we moved recently. We lived in an apartment complex, which if you haven't done that in a long time, maybe just, just take some breaks from your homes and live in an apartment for a few months. It's a great experience. Um, There's some good experiences and some bad experiences in that. Um, but... One of the privileges is, for me, not so much for other members of my family who are not so social, is that I got to see a lot of people every day and just talk to them. People smoking at the smoker's lounge and uh, people hanging out and after work together. And, you know, I get out of my truck and it's the same crew every week, every day. And so, you know, I just would go over and talk with them for well, wow, I know you're shocked at that, that I would just go talk to somebody that was a complete stranger a month ago, but now we've become great friends. Uh, we're in each other's group chat, text. They're telling me when they're going for their smoke breaks in case I want to come down and smoke with them. I don't smoke, but 
One day I got out, and there was a young guy sitting there, probably in his 20s, 30s, early 30s. And I walked over, and we began to talk, and he introduced himself. And uh, he uh, obviously was not from Anniston, Alabama. And so, I, you know, as we were talking, he told me pretty quickly he was here for the Islamic Student Center here in Anniston, where many uh, families are sending their children to be trained in theology. And he had come for a short tenure of time, maybe six months or so, to work in that center. And so I said, well, where are you from? And he said, I'm from Mecca. And so I said, oh, that's interesting. Well, I'm from Columbus, Mississippi. And uh, we began to talk about the way we were raised. And then the next day he's there. And so I went over and we began to talk about life and how he views life and how I view life. And, and over the course of a week or so, we got to... The reality that Allah, which means God, and Yahweh are not the same God. In our conversations, we get this, this is not the same God. No matter how much we try to make them the same or you try to say they're the same, they're not the same God. And the reason that they're not the same God, one of the main reasons that we can say for sure they are not the same God is not the fact that Christians and Muslims celebrate monotheism, which is the belief in one God. We share that. But where we diverge is in the very teaching that we'll be looking at today. One of the major rifts in these two communities, one of the backbone reasons that we cannot say Allah and Yahweh are the same, is that there's no place in the teachings of, of, of the Quran or of uh, the teachings of the Muslim faith for the Trinitarian belief. There's no room for God took on flesh and came to be with us. And, and, and as much as we try to uh, make this you know, something we can work around, let me tell you, if you do not believe that Jesus Christ is eternally the Son of God who took on flesh and dwelled with us as a man, you are not a Christian. I'm just going to say, if you think you are, and you can play with this doctrine, I want to say there is, there is no hope in that. There is no future in it. Because if you do away with the doctrine of the incarnation, you do away with the doctrine of redemption and reconciliation and salvation by God for us for all of eternity. And you are worshiping a God made in an image, and you are not worshiping the God of the Bible. And you say, well, that's a, that's, a, that's a pretty straightforward thing, Carlton, that you just said. I mean, I've got a friend who says they're a Christian, but they, they don't see Jesus as the eternal Son of God who took on flesh. They see him as one who was a man who received the Spirit from God. Or they see him as a spirit and not truly a human man. And I just don't know what the difference is. We have great fellowship. We talk about the Bible. We agree on so many things. Why could this person not be a Christian? Well, the church has spoken about this for 2,000 years in unison. So I want to take you down history a little. You need to hear these words. There's no question, there's no doubt that the true apostolic faith is one that believes that Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man, truly God and truly man. The Apostles' Creed, we don't know when it was written, it was in the early centuries of the church, it's quoted by most of the church fathers verbatim. This is what it says. Second, second I believe statement is, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. That statement is very simplistic, so the Nicene Creed spells it out in more detail. Written in about 325 A.D. and accepted by the church universally. The second statement, And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, 
not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Very plain, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, and yet he came down and was incarnate in the womb by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. Um, Just uh, continue with me. Listen, we don't remember these words often. The Athanasian Creed, the last great creed of the church before the splintering began uh, in the east, west, and this creed is accepted by all Christians This is what it said in Article 29 of the Athanasian Creed. But it is necessary, it is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. Now this is the true faith, that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and man equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. And he is man from the essence of his mother, born in time. Completely God, completely man, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although he is God and man, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one man is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and man. The Augsburg Confession of Faith, written by Philip Melanchthon and Martin Luther and their uh, uh, students. Article 3 of the Augsburg Confession of Faith. Also, they teach that the Word, that is, the Son of God, did assume the human nature in the womb of the blessed Virgin Mary so that there are two natures, the divine and the human, inseparably enjoined in one person, one Christ, true God and true man, who was born of the Virgin Mary, truly suffered, was crucified, dead, and buried, that he might reconcile the Father unto us and be a sacrifice, not only for original guilt, but also for the actual sin of men. That's the Augsburg Confession of Faith written in the early 1500s. The Belgic Confession, the one of the Trinity of the documents that held the Reformed Church together throughout the centuries. It says this in Article 18 on the Incarnation. So then we confess that God fulfilled the promise which he had made to the early fathers by the mouth of his holy prophets when he sent his only and eternal Son into the world at the time set by him. The Son took the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man, truly assuming a real human nature with all its weaknesses except for sin. Being conceived in the womb of the blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit without male participation. And he not only assumed human nature as far as the body is concerned, but also a real human soul in order that he might be a real human being. For since the soul has been lost as well as the body, he had to assume them both, to save them both together. Therefore, we confess against the heresy of the Anabaptists, who deny that Christ assumed human flesh from his mother, that he shared the very flesh and blood of children. And he is fruit of the loins of David, according to the flesh, born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, fruit of the woman, the womb of the Virgin Mary, born of a woman, the seed of David, a shoot from the root of Jesse, the offspring of Judah, having descended from the Jews, according to the flesh, from the seed of Abraham. For he assumed Abraham's seed and was made like his brothers except for sin. In this way he is truly our Emmanuel, that is God with us. The 39 Articles of Faith the controlling document of the Anglican Church. Article 2, of the word of the Son of God, which was made very man. The Son, 
which is the word of the Father, begotten from everlasting of the Father, the very and eternal God, and of one substance with the Father, took man's nature in the womb of the blessed virgin, of her substance, so that two whole and perfect natures, that is to say, the Godhead and manhood, were joined together in one person, never to be divided, whereof is one Christ, very God and very man, who truly suffered, was crucified, dead, buried, to reconcile his Father to us and to be a sacrifice, not only for original guilt, but also for actual sins of men. The London Baptist Confession of Faith. Article 8 of Christ the Mediator. Paragraph 2. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him, who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things he has made, did when the fullness of time was come take unto him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman, of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to to the scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. When I say that the church has spoken unanimously, the church has spoken unanimously from the time of the early fathers through the greatest confessions of our faith down to this very day. If you reject the incarnation of Jesus Christ, if you try to change it in the least, you are not a Christian. You cannot be saved without this truth. And I stress that, and you say, gosh, you're stressing that a lot, and you keep saying it. It grates on my ears. I don't want to hear that because I want you to be merciful, and I want you to be loving, and I want you to be gentle. And what I want to tell you is the most merciful and loving thing I can tell you is that if you do not believe exactly what I've already read to you, what I will further explain to you, you are not a believer. You cannot have saving faith because without this exact doctrine, You cannot believe in the reconciliation of God the Father to a fallen, dead, cursed, judged humanity. There was no plan B. There was no other way. There was only one way. And his name is Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And so we look at this passage that lays in front of us and we, we think about the words of the most beautiful passage in the New Testament, in my opinion, dealing with this subject in John's writing of the prologue of his gospel. He doesn't start out with the story of the historical narrative of Jesus being born. He starts out with a theological proposition. I know in our day we run from theological propositions. We think that theological propositions divide people. They cause problems. You know, they're dead and dry and orthodox and all those things we like to say. But here's the reality. Theology is your life. Your life is based on a theology. And John jumps right in the middle of it. And he says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Eternal God. From time before time. Was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And there was no degree of separation in them They dwelled face to face with one another. I'm going to to resist getting into this side point that this this week just really honed on on me. And I'm not going to get into it. But but it's, it's burdening to me that we are losing face to face interaction. 
It is destroying us. That's not an overstatement. We were not created for anything less than face-to-face interaction. Because the one who created us dwelled face-to-face. Lest we have a sermon within the sermon, let me go back and say that what has been established from the beginning is that God is both God the Father, God the Son, and as we will see, God the Holy Spirit. And that they dwell in a unity that is indivisible. Their essence is the same. Their, their, their face-to-face communion is all that they needed. They had no lack. They had no needs. They were fully content with one another. And out of their full contentment and out of their full enjoyment of one another, they, by the plan of the Father, created all that we see and all that we can't see. And that's what the Bible tells us in the very next verse. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It cannot extinguish it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, listen to these words, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. Those who accepted him, accepted him as a free gift, knowing that he is the one who saves, knowing that he is the promise of the Father, knowing that he is God in the flesh. Those who accepted that, received him, he gave the power to be called sons of God. So the eternal Son of God blessed us with familial tie by saying, you believe in me, you're grafted into me, you are my very body. You are my very people. Out of all the peoples of the earth, Christian, we are called to be known for who Jesus is, who our Savior is. Not born of the will of man, not born of the flesh, not born of the blood of humanity. We're not able to get this by descendant from a tribe. or We're not able to receive salvation because uh, our parents want us to be saved. We receive it of God. Thank God it's that way, right? I'm looking at mostly, as far as I know, maybe all Gentile people. If it was of the flesh and of the blood, we would be out But it wasn't of the flesh and it wasn't of the blood. God took on flesh and blood so that he could overcome every barrier to bring you to himself. That's what the doctrine teaches us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. This is the passage really that I want to focus on today. All of that leading up to this, first of all, that the transcendent God became intimate with us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The first five verses of John's Gospel, as we've already read, point us to the fact that the Word is transcendent. He is above us. He is not like us. He is God of very God, truly God. He is in one essence with the Father and the Spirit. He is eternal. He is independent. He is self-satisfying. He is the creator, the sustainer, the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. 
John paints a very powerful picture about how awesome the Word is. The Word is not an idea. The Word is not a group of teachings. The Word is the Son of God, eternal from before all time, with the Father and with the Spirit, and self-sufficient in Himself. He is greater than all things. He created all things. He possesses all things. He sustains all things. This is Jesus. This is the God, the Son. Very God, the confession says. And we're comfortable with God this way. I mean, we like to talk about God in transcendent terms. Us Christians do. We like to refer to God as the great and mighty one who saves the one who's up there, away and separate from us. We enjoy that. Every person deep in their heart has a desire to see God, to be protected by God, to be provided for by God, to have God maintain the general laws of the universe so that we don't all go spinning off the planet. He, He is transcendent. And as long as He's transcendent, we put Him in that box. It's not messy. It's clean. He's out there. Our world is not so offended by this kind of talk. It's, it, some corners of the world might be, some in our society might be, but for the most part, the culture we live in will accept us if this is where we stop. And we just talk about God in these ways. We will not run into this problem. But John says in the first part of the verse that we just read in John 1.14 that the Word didn't stay in the box of transcendency, but it came near to us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, those who were agreeing with us on the point of His transcendence, we lose a lot of them when we begin to talk about His Intimacy, his closeness, his dwelling with us. This is one of the most intimate actions that God could take. He now, on a very personal level, knows humanity. He has put on human flesh with all of its weaknesses, but without sin. Philippians 2 6 through 11, another great hymn of the, of the Christology that we're talking about is Paul's writing to us about the kind of mind we should have within us, that which Christ had. And what kind of mind did Christ have? He, being equal with God, did not see it as something to be grasped hold to, but rather set it aside. What did he set aside? His godness? No. He set aside his eternal dwelling place. He set aside the Shekinah glory. He set aside the throne. He set aside the the tranquility of the Godhead. He set aside the otherness and came near. Fully God. And yet he came near to us. He didn't become less God. He maintained the fullness of the Godhead and put it in flesh. Now, if your mind's not spinning at this moment, if you think, oh, yeah, man, come on, get to something I don't understand, then you don't understand. We often try to use physical analogies to talk about this, and we talk about the difference between, you know, whoever your hero in sports is, you know, uh, some of you young kids, LeBron on the basketball court, and, I, and your, your five-year-old's playing LeBron, right? And we talk about that, and we say, that's like God coming down to be like us. You know, if you're in my generation, it's magic, you know. If you're in basketball, if it, hey, if, if you want to switch sports, you know, we just watched two old men box each other in the boxing ring. Yes, yes, I watched it, and I enjoyed it. But it's like if, if a five-year-old got in the ring with Mike Tyson, you know, and uh, even the 51-year-old or 55-year-old, however old he is now. And we try to talk like this, like that's a gap that, symbolizes the gap that Jesus overcame to come and be with us. And what I want to say to you is, is that any human analogy, any earthly analogy you would come up with, fails. Because Mike Tyson and the five-year-old are the same. 
There's just a difference in age and ability and development. But what I'm saying, what the Bible is saying is that God, the one transcendent being in all of the universe, became intimate and got in a body, a flesh, a true human form and dwelled with his people. It it goes beyond our human comprehension how this could be. This cannot be reasoned through academia. This cannot be understood through many books and many lectures and many conversations. This truth is accepted and believed because God himself births the faith to believe it in your own heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why your lost friend looks at you like you are crazy. That's why my, my friend, my new friend from Mecca, looked at me like I had committed blasphemy to talk this way. That God became a man and was still God and was fully man? It's blasphemy. That's why the Jews wanted to put him on a cross. That's why the nation of Israel went along with it. That's why the Roman emperor went along with it. Was because this is the one abhorrent thing, the most central, the most core thing that turns people from Christianity. Because humans cannot accept that God would come and be with us. And yet maintain the fact that he's God. John says it happened. Paul says it happened. The Bible is unanimous and it happened. The church fathers all the way down to today, the church has accepted the same truth. We often talk about 100% God and 100% man, which as R.C. Sproul says is not true mathematically or theologically. It's better to say very God, very man. We're not asking people to believe logical uh, uh, tricks. We're calling on people by faith to believe that God pitched his tent tabernacled with us. This is what the Word says. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word dwelt among us is the word where we get tabernacle in the Old Testament. And so it's better to think of it biblically than with human analogies and earthly analogies. Verse 14 Cannot be over, it cannot be overstated the importance of the doctrine that's being taught here in verse 14. The word became humiliated by putting on the flesh of a human. Not just any human, but the human servant. Not just any servant, but a servant unto death. And not just any death, but the death of a cross. The condescension of Jesus Christ is... Breathtaking. Secondly, we see in this passage that he pitched his tent with us. This term might bring up a lot of memories for you as some of you have actually camped and lived in a tent for a little bit. But that's not exactly what's meant here. This isn't just some temporary thing that we do for a hobby or fun or to get connected with nature. This is actually talking about tabernacling like God tabernacled with the people of Israel in the Old Testament. So what John's saying is that the Word became flesh, and the significance of that is that it's like the Old Testament teaching where God dwelled in the midst of His people in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was constructed by the children of Israel according to the command of God, and everything in the tabernacle, everything about the, the, the formation of the camp around the tabernacle was intentional to paint the picture of the coming tabernacling one The Christ, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. It was in the tabernacle that the Ark of the Covenant was housed, the Holy of Holies, the altar of a sacrifice. There are several things that I want us to observe about this, this word, he dwelt among us. First of all, the tabernacle was the center of of the Israel's camp. The 12 tribes were divided evenly, and on all four sides of the, temp, of the tabernacle, you had three tribes, one, three on the east, three on the west, 
three on the north, and three on the south. This was to point to the fact that God was at the center of his people. And that Jesus later would be the center of the Christian. He's the place that we gather. He's the focal point that we come to. As a matter of fact, he says this in his own words in John 12, 32. He said, but I, when I am lifted up, will draw all men to myself. First of all, we see that the tabernacle is the center of all things. The tabernacle was also the place where the law of Moses was preserved. So you had the tablets of the law written down and kept in the Ark of the Covenant. And Jesus, Jesus, as he says in Matthew chapter 5, came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. The tabernacle contained the law. And Jesus didn't come to abolish that law, but rather to live in accordance with that law and fulfill every single jot and tittle so that it might be that he took on in himself the law, fulfilled it. It had never been fulfilled. He fulfilled it perfectly. So like the ark was in the tabernacle and it contained the law of God, and that is also true of Jesus, the law of God is in him. He never failed the law. He did his Father's will And he had a desire and love for the law of God that was unsurpassed by anyone. The third thing we see in this dwelt with us, or tabernacle with us, we see that just as in the Old Testament, the tabernacle is the dwelling place of God. The main way that this is symbolized in the Old Testament is through the Holy of Holies. And so even in the tabernacle, we had this place where only the high priest could go once a year. It's where God came down on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. We had two cherubim where they, their wings came back, and it was formed a throne. And one time they were a, a year they were allowed to enter into this place to, to put blood upon the throne, so to speak, to offer sacrifice for themselves. And God would receive it. This is where the Shekinah glory of God came and dwelt. And so we see that the light of the glory of God is not only revealed in a tent in the Old Testament called a tabernacle, but in the tabernacling of Jesus Christ. Our verse actually says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It shines like the glory of God. It shines, the glory of God shines forth, emanates from him in a way it never has before. Fourth, we see that because the tabernacle was the place where God dwelt among his people, it was also the place of revelation. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was where they worshiped and communed with God. Well, now for us Christians, Jesus is the place where we worship and commune with God. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says, God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So just like the tabernacle was a place where the people gathered and heard from God, Jesus, the one who tabernacled with us, is the place where we hear from God. Fifth, the tabernacle in the Old Testament, was a place of sacrifice. On the east side of the courtyard of the tabernacle, in front of the only entrance into the tabernacle, the brazen altar stood with the continual sacrifice burning on it. This was significant because it made it clear that no one may approach God unless a sacrifice is made. In Hebrews 9, 22, this is what it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. This is the great question in regards to our relationship with God. How can a sinful man, corrupted by nature and actions, approach a holy God? How is it that we can approach God? Well, the answer is that a sinful man can only enter into the presence of God through the tabernacle of Jesus Christ. At the cross, Christ gave a perfect sacrifice. He died in our place. He, the Lamb of God, took away the sins of all who believe in Him. Hebrews 12, 18-24 says this, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that was burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that their 
that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned and shot through with arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. You have not come to that, Christian. But what you have come to is Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made complete, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. We've not come to God through the law or its many offerings that could not satisfy the wrath of God. We have come through the blood of of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The tabernacling one. God with us. So our passage is filled with meaning. The word, eternally God, as we saw in verses 1 through 5, the word became flesh. As we see, not just a flesh of another kind, but a flesh like ours, without sin, and dwelt among us. He tabernacled. Why does that matter? Because he's the center of all things. Because he's the keeper of the law that no one else could keep. And he's the sacrifice that has satisfied the wrath of God against us. Without the incarnation, none of these things are true. With the incarnation, we are accepted by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So, what does this mean? The glory of God has been revealed. When the first disciples witnessed the first of Jesus' many miracles at the wedding of Canaan in John chapter 2, verse 11, this is what they said, or this is what John recorded. This beginning, this is the beginning of the signs of Jesus that he did at Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. He began to manifest the glory of Christ. You know, it's true. If God has given you eyes to see and ears to hear, you can see the glory of God and you can hear the word of God. But if he has not given you eyes to see and ears to hear, everything comes as a riddle. Everything comes as confusing. Everything comes as too heavy and too much. It's the glory that we long to see, isn't it? Christian, tossed and turned in this world, don't you desire to see the glory of God? Well, 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says this about the glory of God. But we all with unveiled face, beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. What am I saying to you? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. And we're, if we beheld it, if you have eyes to see it, then it's transforming you. And so I want to end by asking some very specific and pointed implications and questions from this text. I feel I've laid a sufficient groundwork. You may not fully grasp it. Maybe we need to talk some more about it. But I feel like we've gone from history to the Bible, and now I want to become very practical with you. When the Bible talks about Jesus tabernacling with us, this is what practically happened. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. You heard the one confession say, without the participation of a man. So this is how he was born. In the womb of his mother, the egg of his mother was fertilized by the Spirit of God. Mysteriously, God overshadowed her womb. Therefore, he is a real human. He's not Looks like a, he's not like the Gnostics say he looked like a human, but he wasn't really human. 
He had DNA. Blood flowed in his veins. As he lived on the earth, he lived with the same limitations that we live, live with. He faced the same scenarios of temptation and testing that we face. He got cold. He got hungry. He got tired. He expressed real emotion, at least two, very poignantly in the Bible. Sorrow and anger. That's another sermon. Gone is your pert plush Jesus with all of his hallmark sayings. That's cultural Christianity. There's not a lot of slap-happy comedy. Do I think Jesus had, had a comedic side? Do I think that he had fun with his guys? Probably so, but the Bible doesn't choose to tell us that. What the Bible chooses to tell us is he had sorrow over the sinfulness and brokenness of this world, and he was angry at the religious leaders who were oppressing his people. So he had real emotion. He faced real weakness. He was hungry. He was sick. He was tired. He was thirsty. Right? He had real relationships with his mother very clearly. With his brothers who thought he was insane. With his disciples who he said, no greater love has any man than this that he laid down his life for his friends. And I call you my friends. Not only are you my friend, I'm going to die for you. He acted the roles of the chosen one. He was a king. He faced the representative of the most powerful king in his day when he faced him. And he said, is it true? Are you the king of the Jews? He gave answers like, oh, you said so. Do you not know that I hold power in my hand? Pilate said, to let you live or let you die. He said, you don't have any power except the power which was granted to you from the Father. If my kingdom was of this world, my followers would pick up swords and fight you and defeat you. But my kingdom is not of this world. He talked like a king. Because he was a king. He commanded the spirits to leave. He commanded people to walk who could not walk. He commanded people to see who could not see. He fed thousands of people from a few loaves and a few fish. He was a king. He was not just a king, but he was a prophet. Thus says the Lord. That formulation of the Old Testament prophets, repent and believe. These were the way he let out his sermons. You have heard it said, but I say to you, he was a prophet. He was a priest. He was often seen praying, praying to his father in different situations. One that's been very meaningful to me is this one recently, and that is that he prayed specifically for Peter when Peter was under the temptation of Satan. Why do I tell you all these things? Because some of you have come here thinking, well, I'm different. I don't think God can help me. God, God doesn't understand what I'm facing. God's never seen someone with the problems that I have. And what I want to say to you is, is that Jesus Christ dwells among us. And that his glory transforms us from the sinful, fallen, broken people with no hope into people that have hope, who have not the relief of all their earthly problems, but the relief of their greatest sorrow, separation from God. Jesus is not transcendently separated, but he's imminent with you. And he knows your problems. And he's not caught off guard by your problems. And he's not overwhelmed by your problems. Because he's seen them over and over again. He's faced them. He's conquered them. Secondly, from this text, I want us to see that we beheld his glory not to hold on to it selfishly 
and grasp to it tightly, but to let it be displayed through us. There is a type of ministry that is done in our world and, and I think well-intended, though with some struggles, and it's called incarnational ministry. I know some of you are probably familiar with this style of ministry where we talk about becoming like Christ and incarnate, going into a culture and living with the people and actually taking on their culture and living in their problems so that we can be the light of Christ to them and then bring them to the Father. There are many good things about this, and there are some checks that I would have. First of all, none of us can incarnate. Only Christ did that. Okay, But we can look to him as our example. So how did Jesus deal with the sins and problems of the people? From a distance or up close? I mean, this is the same Jesus, right, in John 4, who seeing the problem of the Samaritans must needs go to Samaria. And went and sat at a well and found a woman who had had many husbands and was living with a man that was not her husband. And he spoke with her, and you know the story. At the end of the story, she has come to know the Savior who gives water that never ceases to spring up new life from inside of her. But did he reach her by standing back from her? And saying, well, if she wants to know me, she'll come to me. Did he stay in, in Galilee, teaching along the seaside, and say, well, maybe one day she'll hear I'm here and she'll come? What did Jesus do? Jesus went to her. Sat down where she would come opened up a conversation with her, entered into her problem, identified her needs, called her to believe. And she not only believed, but became a great missionary, <laughs> immediately wanting getting a whole village to come. Is this the only time he's done that? No. I would argue that everywhere he healed someone, he planned his route with that person in mind. That blind man sitting on the side of the road, we're going to walk right past him because he's going to cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me, and I'm going to heal him. That lame man that can't walk, I'm going to say, get up and take up your bed and walk. I think everything in his life was done strategically to be with the people. I think when he found the lepers, that wasn't a coincidence. I think he went and found them. The untouchables he touched. The people that were far off he brought near. How did he do it? He dwelled with us. So let me ask you a question. Who are you dwelling with that they might hear the word of God and be saved? Are you intentionally living with the people God has put in your life? Intentionally living with them? Or are you just living with them? Is there anybody in your close association today, without straining to think of them, that you would say, I've started a relationship with that person because they are not like me? Because they don't agree with me because they don't know Christ because their life is a train wreck. Is there anybody you started a relationship with that way? And you were prayerful over it and intentional about it? You see, I, I think one of the implications of our text is not just that our Savior came near to us, but that he's called us to go near the people. Too many times we've sat back, church, Grace Fellowship, and said, if they want to know, they'll come. And while I don't say that's totally wrong, it's incomplete. If someone wants to know, some of them will come. But most of them will not. 
Most of them will require us to go to them and humble ourselves. Now, some of you are doing this. You're living radically. You're choosing where you live and how you live intentionally to bring people into the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you because it's hard work. The reason the rest of us aren't doing it is because it's harder to live that way. It's easier to live separated. It's harder to live in the middle of it, to rub shoulders, to be tempted, to fail. So I want to encourage you, if you're already living this way, continue on that path. And if not, pray, seek the Lord, open your eyes with compassion, see the people that God's already put in your life. There are people in your life right now who need to know Christ. There are people right now. I'm not calling on you to go make some grand new friendship. That's a big step. Just the people you've got in your life right now. Some of them live in your house. Well, I live with those people, yeah, but not intentionally. Live intentionally with that brother or sister or that wife or that husband. Live intentionally with them. Sit down and have conversation with them about the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that can save them from all of their sin. If we will not walk into the lives of the people that are around us, then why do we talk about reaching the nations with the gospel? If we're not willing to reach our neighbor... Are we really going to reach the people out there? These people live with us every day. We're not going to reach our children with the gospel. That would be strange, wouldn't it? Oh, I'm a missionary. I don't share the gospel with people in the United States. I only do it in the country that God sent me to. Really? That's strange. It seems that the biblical picture and the historical picture is that we do it where we are and God moves us to new places And sends us to the nations. Because we're already doing it. So what I'm calling you to do is see the incarnation. Believe in the incarnation. Be transformed by the incarnation. So that you live intentionally with the people God has put in your life. So that they might know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And be saved. That's what I call you to today. Won't you join me in this endeavor. In knowing this God transformed by him, and sharing his glorious truth with everyone you come in contact with. Let's pray, Father. As we think about this truth, it's easy to be separated from it, to be disconnected, to be bored even. Some here have been bored with the truth and Father, I pray that you would wake our dead souls to what truly life is, what truly life should be about. Help us, convict us, transform us by the glory that you share with the Father. We pray for Grace Fellowship, that in the journey of a church, it's easy to relax and just to be satisfied with what we have. The people that we know help us to repent of this coldness, to really burn with a hot fire of the glory that only you have and to then go to the world and share the truth. Father, we think about those that are in our congregation that are lost and those who pretend to be saved and those who know they're not saved. We pray, God, you would have mercy on them. Open their eyes to the truth. Help them to not just sit close by and hear and experience, but to truly 
be captured by your grace. And for those of us who know you and are saved by your grace, we pray, God, that you would transform our lives to be true missional people in this community. Father, we know that this is impossible by our own effort. So as we go, we want you to go with us. We desire for you to show us yourself and your glory through your word, through your son, that we might be changed and bring that life-changing message to our family, our church, our friends, our community, to the whole world. It's in your name we pray. Amen.